Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The 2016 Utah Legislature passed Senate Concurrent Resolution 9, which describes pornography as a public health crisis. The resolution's sponsor, Senator Todd Weiler, Republican from Woods Cross, says recent research has shown porn is increasing, lowers self-worth, leads to unhealthy views of sex and relationships, increases the odds of infidelity, and is a major cause of divorce, among other problems. The resolution has captured the attention of people around the world. There has been some pushback as well. Anna Bridges, associate professor of psychology at the University of Arkansas, expressed skepticism to the New York Times about labeling pornography a public health crisis. She says the research is entirely too nascent to be able to make those claims at this point. She also points to Utah's lack of comprehensive sex education in the schools as a problem, saying it's needed to counteract pornography's message about sex. We're going to talk with Professor Bridges later in the program. And in the first segment here, we are bringing on Senator Weiler. Senator Todd Weiler joins us. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. We also uh, bring on Vanna Davis, Executive Director, Utah Coalition Against Pornography. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Senator Weiler, uh, this has got a lot of attention. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, the first question would be, why? Why this resolution? Why did, why did you think it was necessary? Well, um, pornography, I think, is a plague in our society, and I think that We've been lulled into this false sense of security like the proverbial frog in the pan where the water gets gradually hotter and hotter and the frog never jumps out uh, and eventually boils to death. And, you know, we, we have gone from a society that um, will not allow a 17-year-old to see an R-rated movie and would not allow someone under the age of 18 or 21 to enter into an adult sex shop um, to uh, a society where 11-year-olds are carrying around smartphones in their pockets, which are actually vending machines and retail stores for hardcore pornographic videos. And uh, they can connect to uh, free Wi-Fi at McDonald's and watch some of the most graphic hardcore videos that the mind could ever imagine. We we have transformed in the last 10 to 15 years very slowly into the society now where a child can't walk into an R-rated movie, but they can pull out their smartphone and see the most horrific um, uh, obscene images that the mind could not even imagine. And, uh, Senator, what action is the resolution uh, calling for? What what action are you calling for? Well, I'm really calling for uh, the community to uprise and say we're we're not, you know, this is a problem and we need to change. And, And I have always said, number one, this is not about banning pornography for me. Number two, it's about protecting children from pornography. And number three, um, I would like to see um, people voluntarily, like McDonald's, I've asked them to, to, to filter their Wi-Fi for children and for adults if they would consider that, because I don't know that anyone needs to be sitting in a, a children's restaurant watching hardcore pornography. I, I just can't understand why that would be good. But um, I'm not trying to be a prude about it. I'm just saying that that's not acceptable. And, and by comparison, uh, when I was a kid, you could buy cigarettes in a vending machine. I grew up outside of Utah. So you could put in two quarters, pull a, pull a knob, and walk out with a pack of cigarettes. And, and, and nobody would think that that's acceptable today. In fact, you have to go to 7-Eleven and show your ID and prove that you're 19 in Utah, 21 in, in, in Hawaii. And yet we've got vending machines in our pockets now that, that dispense porn. And and um, and everybody seems to be okay with that. So um, I think our public libraries, some of our libraries are filtering porn, and others aren't in Utah. So I think that's a step. And I really think we need to change the nation, like um, uh, David Cameron has been trying to do in England, and and say that the internet should be delivered porn-free and force people to opt into it if that's what they want to see. 
Vano Davis uh, from Utah Coalition Against Pornography. First of all, your general thoughts about uh, Senate Concurrent Resolution 9. What, what do you think? We're so grateful and appreciative of the Utah State Legislator for passing this resolution because this issue has been in the dark for so long, and this silence has allowed pornography to spread through society to the extent that children really cannot grow up anymore without being exposed to pornography at some point. In fact, the average age of exposure is 11 right now. So we're grateful because um, we think we can't change what we don't acknowledge, and this is a step in acknowledging that there's a problem so that we can take action on it. Uh, how does, uh, I guess, one of the factors here, some would say, okay, if someone is viewing pornography, uh, they're viewing pornography, right? It's not, it's not affecting anyone else. How does pornography uh, harm relationships and how does it harm society? Yes, it's, I think it's a false and dangerous idea that pornography is a personal choice that doesn't have any impact on society. And we say it's a public health crisis because it's beyond the ability of an individual or a family to manage it on their own anymore. It has physical effects that people need to be aware of. Brain changes, potential for addiction, sexual dysfunction have been documented from pornography. And it's harming children by damaging their healthy sexual development. Many of them are developing lifelong dependencies because children, their brain is not developed, so they're more at risk to, to addiction. Um, it damages marriages and families, and it drives the demand for other forms of sexual exploitation, such as sexual assault, which is in the news all the time, sex trafficking, child abuse and child pornography, prostitution and domestic violence. So um, we just think people have a right to know the consequences of pornography, just like public health campaigns have taught the consequences of smoking, driving under the influence, you know, wearing seatbelts in your cars. Uh, how widespread is pornography use in Utah? Does Utah track with national trends? How, how widespread? Well, uh, you know, the, there, there's often I've often been accused of uh, being a hypocrite. I've been scorned and mocked in the media for running this because there there's one study from 2009 that said we had the highest paid subscriptions to pornography in the country, and that that study showed that um, it was five paid prescriptions for 1,000 people in California. It was like three paid prescriptions for every 1,000. There have since been other studies that said that Utah uh, that has found that, so, so that was only paid subscriptions. There's other studies that have shown that Utah is the lowest in the nation in per capita consumption of, of pornography. And so I don't really know. I don't, I'm not in a position to really track that. We know that people in, in Utah are viewing pornography, and I, I agree with Vana. I believe it. It does undermine um, the family. And, you know, if a father is spending his free time uh, viewing pornography, he's going to be l much less, uh, much more detached from not only his wife but also his children and much less intimate with them, you know, not in a sexual way but just in an emotional way because as we hear a lot from um, Clay Olson with Fight the New Drug, uh, pornography kills love. It, it, really, it really deadens uh, people's senses to other human beings. Von Davis, uh, this is hard to track, I would think. You, you could track paid subscriptions, but uh, I would assume that a lot of pornography is, is you know, is free or, you know, you can't track it as well. Right. We don't have solid numbers on Utah, but I can tell you that um, Senator Weiler just mentioned Fight the New Drug, which is one of our partner organizations, and they're working um, to spread the message to teens that pornography is harmful. 
And they have in their possession 3,000 letters from teens in Utah who are desperately seeking help for their challenges with pornography. So there's a, there's a number that kind of describes the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Senator Weiler, uh, I'm sure you've heard some of this pushback about priorities. Uh, some people say, okay, you know, pornography a problem, but... Uh, it, 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 does it rise to the level of public health crisis? And then, then they list other priorities that should be ahead of ahead of it. Yeah, you know, there's there's two or three I think lazy attacks. I'm going to call them lazy attacks that I get for 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 this uh, resolution that we passed. First of all, um, um, the resolution never says that pornography is the only uh, public health crisis. Cl- clearly, you know, Ebola and uh, the Zika virus and uh, a lot of other things um, are, are, are health crises, and, and we're not suggesting this is the only one. Second of all, this resolution was one of 475 different measures passed in the legislature. Uh, it literally took less than an hour of floor time in both the House and the Senate and, and less than an hour of, uh, well, a little bit over an hour of, of committee time. Um, and, you know, we have 45 days, and, and um and I and I passed 18 other bills besides this one. So I love I love how people are so concerned about the amount of time that I have, you know, to, to pursue other things. I I, I passed a, a measure that will dramatically increase um, our public defender uh, system to protect people's Sixth Amendment rights when they're charged with crimes and can't afford their own attorneys. I I do very substan- substantive work in the legislature, and I I believe that warning people warning families about the harmful effects of pornography is part of the sub- substantive work that I'm, that I'm doing. And what would you say, Senator, about the, the word crisis? Uh, because some people are, you know, setting aside, um, comparing it to other uh, problems. Uh, cr- some people are saying, well, problem, yes, crisis, perhaps not. Well, I mean, again, I think you could have more than one crisis at a time. I believe it is a crisis. The American Bar Association has said that 62 percent, uh, their matrimonial lawyers have reported that 62 percent of all divorces can be traced in one form or another to pornography. And when people get divorced, there are more children who are end up on welfare and on food stamps, and um, and uh, they're unattended after school, and their grades go down. We know that the number one factor uh, for successful students worldwide. Uh, for, for students succeeding at school, the number one factor of, of an outcome, determinative outcome, is two parents in the home. And so I, I do believe that the word crisis is appropriate. Um, it may not be um, as, as a, an open crisis as maybe something like the Zika virus or, or something like that, because um, you know it's not that people are dying or being born with smaller brains. But this pornography, we know from recent research, it does actually affect your brain. And there was a cover story this month in Time Magazine about two non-religious and non-moral uh, people who are warning uh, their peers to stay away from pornography because it will ruin your ability to have a normal human sexual relationship. Hmm. Uh, Vaughn Davis, I want to direct the same question to you. Uh, um, do, you do you believe this is pornography is a public health crisis? Use that word crisis. And if so, uh, why? I do think it's a crisis because, you know, the effects are so under the radar because people um, tend to hide and minimize the effects. But we see what's happening with children. There's um, actually more and more child-on-child sexual abuse reported. Um, We've got a new study that just came out in the last few months, actually, say that one in three Americans seeks out porn once a month. 
and that's much more for younger people. So 67% of males who are age 13 through 24, which is our teens and young adults, and 33% of females in that same age, age group. And I think it's important to realize this is a problem for both um, the girls and the young men. And um, I think that I'm glad Senator Weiler said that the, the, our hope is to have the public rise up because we don't have to wait for legislation to do anything. Um, there's p- things people can do with this resolution right away. They can use it to teach their family the harms of pornography. They can start a conversation with their friends or associates or share it on social media. They can talk to their local schools or their city government and churches and make them aware of the resolution and say, how can you help to t- them to take steps to educate and provide help on the issue? Yvonne Davis, uh, how early we're hearing that uh, kids earlier and earlier are exposed to pornography? How early? Well, the average age of exposure is 11, which means half of it is younger than 11. And um, this same study I just mentioned said that of those who um, are using pornography actively, 27% of them became addicted. They feel they became addicted before puberty, so in grade school. So um, it is a big problem that way. Do, do we know how, what percentage uh, report becoming addicted? I haven't seen um, stats on who's addicted because addiction means People have to have tried to quit and found out that they haven't been able to quit and then go on for help. And um, only 9% of people who are actively using pornography have tried to quit. So they may not know if they're addicted. They may not, they may be denying it, which is a common um, experience with people in addiction, Hmm. of any addiction. So. That's a hard one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Senator Weiler, uh, if one of your goals was to get a conversation started, you, you know, uh, success, uh, the, there's been reaction all over the world, uh, you know, positive pushback. Uh, I, I'm just interested, what, um, from what you've seen, this conversation that's, that's happening all over the world, what, what do you think? What's, what's struck you? I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. And, you know, I've been accused of doing this in an election year to help myself or help the governors re-election, and I'm not that smart <laughs> to, to have predicted this. I've actually been working with one of my constituents in Bountiful, Utah, named uh, Jenny Brown. She's a dentist on pornography, anti-pornography, or pornography education measures for four years in the legislature, and we passed another, uh, I passed another resolution two years ago about the dangers of gateway pornography, like gateway drugs. This could be the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or billboards that you see in Las Vegas, things like that and got very little media attention. So when I unrolled this bill, uh, this uh, proposed language for this resolution in January, I was shocked and thrilled at the same time that, you know, it was being mentioned on shows like The View by Whoopi Goldberg and Piers Morgan on a show called The Doctors, and I was interviewed live on Fox News internationally. And and, uh, I've given interviews just this week, in the past week, in Spain and and Germany and um, Ireland, and uh, I'll be flying out to Los Angeles next month to do a, a live show. So, you know, it's not about me. I just want to make that clear. This is about educating people. I think everyone knows if you start using meth or heroin or cocaine, I think everyone knows you're, you may end up addicted to it. With pornography, a, a lot of 
natural and uh, normal human desires and a lot of curiosity will lead someone to looking at pornography for the first time, and they don't realize that this may be something that actually overtakes their lives, may cost them their job and their family, and be something that they are, they're really hooked to for, for decades. Um, and so I, I do think it's appropriate to warn people that this is a dangerous and addictive substance. Bono Davis, uh, why do you think this has hit such a chord? You know, some of it's, yeah, frankly, you know, uh, ridicule, but but others, uh, you know, a, a serious discussion about this. Why do you think it's hit a chord worldwide? I think that's a great sign that people really are wondering, what about pornography? You know, they may see that it's very acceptable in their society. At least, lots of people are watching it. And yet at the same time, they have some doubts about, you know, is this um, objectifying people? Is this creating damaging expectations? Um, is this really the right thing to be doing? And so I think it shows that there's um, some questions out there that need to be answered. So it's great that this conversation is getting started. Uh, Senator Weiler, uh, I want to br- bring up um, sex education. You'll hear, uh, the, we'll hear from my guest in the second half, uh, Professor Bridges, uh, who talks about uh, Utah's lack of comprehensive sex education as being a problem. She says absence-only education will not work in providing a counter-narrative to the message of uh, pornography. What What do you say? And 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 not to be. I don't want to sound condescending, but this is the third of the lazy arguments that I hear in all the time against what I've done. So let me first be clear. Utah is one of 31 states that does not provide what is called comprehensive sex education. We're in the majority. There's only 19 states that do that. We're in the majority of the states that provide the middle tier of information. It's called abstinence-based, and that's often confused with abstinence-only education, which is the lowest tier of information. So we're not on the lowest, we're not on the highest, we're right in the middle. And, um, and we are, I mean, we often get kind of mocked and ridiculed as being, you know, this, you know, Utah culture and we can't do what everybody else is doing. When it comes to sex ed, we are doing what everybody else is doing. And there is zero data uh, to show that in the 19 states where there is comprehensive, more information sex ed, that there is less uh, pornography use or addiction by teens or adults or otherwise. And I think it's ludicrous to think or to suggest that the only reason kids are looking at pornography is because they don't know where babies come from. And let me just say, I don't believe it's healthy for an 11 or 12-year-old boy to watch three men gang-raping a woman and abusing her, which is what you'll often see in pornography. 92% of videos online today we know from studies um, show violence against women. I don't think that we want 11-year-old boys learning about sex from watching those kinds of videos. Mona Davis, uh, a similar question to you, to sex education in the schools. What what role does that play, if any, in your view, in, in counteracting uh, pornography? So with UCAP, our, our goal is to get parents to take charge of teaching their children. That's really where it starts, and then the parents are there to, you know, every step of the way with their kids. And parents are so hesitant, but every time they talk to their kids, their kids are safer. And, you know, even, um, it's not even as hard to explain to a four or five-year-old as people think. You know, you can just say, if you see videos or pictures of people without their clothes on, come and talk to me. And it can be that simple. And just progress from there with um, the, you know, the appropriate 
age of your children, but helping them understand what the harms of pornography are, which this resolution can help with, practicing with their kids what to do when they see pornography, using technology to set parental controls, and then following up with their kids. So like, have, since the last time we talked, have you seen pornography? And just checking up all the time. That's really where the power is. Mm-hmm. What, Devon Davis, what's the... What's the message you most want to get out? How, how best to counteract pornography, especially among children? So helping um, parents be comfortable starting this conversation with their kids. You know, Pamela Atkinson, who's our board chair, said, if we love our children, we have to do something now. And these bills are just the beginning. And so um, that's why we are working so hard to help um, the public understand they none of us had models in our home of learning how to talk about this, so it's kind of new territory, and people need to um, I really hope that people can understand that when young people start viewing pornography, even if they choose to do it, they're victims and to approach their kids with love and help them feel safe talking about what's going on. Senator Weiler, uh, finally, uh, a conversation has been started. Where do you hope this goes? Well, I I hope that this will continue to lead to other states. Um, I want to clarify, declaring pornography as a health issue is is just a different way of approaching helping uh, to protect children, because for the last decade or two, the conversation has been, well, the Supreme Court says pornography is legal as long as it's not obscene, so what are you going to do? Well, there is things we can do, just like we did with tobacco. So we, we, we need to make pornography less accessible for children. When I was a kid, you had to practically climb a mountain to, find, to see a Playboy centerfold. And, 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 and most kids, including me in that generation, climbed that mountain a few times. But now with two or three clicks on a phone or a keyboard, you can watch the, these horrific images and videos, and degra- they're degrading, they're debasing, and, and they are an, uh, a horrible influence that's undermining um, our, our society. So I would like to see Congress and even the President of the United States get engaged, like the Prime Minister of, of, of Great Britain has, and start taking measures that will help us protect our the innocence of our children as they're adolescent brains develop. I mean, we, we know from science that uh, compulsive pornography use uh, during adolescent years will actually change your brain chemistry, will rewire your reward systems. Uh, watching pornography releases uh, dopamine into your brain, which is, which is an element that will get you high like cocaine or, or heroin. And, and that's, um, uh, you know, the U.S. Navy, which, which is in the business of recruiting 19 and 20-year-old men primarily, they have seen a drastic difference in their recruits uh, with this new generation who has grown up compulsively viewing pornography on high-speed Internet, and, and they're addressing those problems, and they've actually hired a neuroscientist uh, to try to deal with some of those problems. And, and the Time Magazine story that I, I, I mentioned shows that you know men are now having hard time sustaining normal, healthy relationships with people they love because they have literally warped their brains with compulsive pornography use. We are at the end of this segment. We thank very much Senator Todd Weiler, who is sponsor of this Senate Concurrent Resolution 9. Senator Weiler, thank you. Thank you. And we've been talking with Vonna Davis, Executive Director, Utah Coalition Against Pornography. Thank you to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Just mention uh, it's utahcoalition.org, I believe, the website. Right. Thank you. Uh, for resources uh, there. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Anna Bridges, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arkansas. Stay tuned.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, an etched magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest. Celebrating the desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the great Southwest. More online at edgedmagazine.com. This is State of the Arts. The arts were so popular in early Cache Valley that it earned the nickname the Athens of the West. According to local lore, all of Shakespeare's plays were performed in Cache Valley by 1870. Hiram, Richmond, Smithfield, Franklin, Wellsville, and Providence all built opera houses around the turn of the century. In 1910, a reporter from Harper's Weekly observed, The people of Cache Valley have evidenced a great interest in dramatics, music, art, and literature since the very beginning of their settlement, and have made this valley a center of art and culture. A century later, Cache Valley is still recognized for its artistic richness with an abundance of visual and performing arts organizations. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are uh, talking about Senate Concurrent Resolution 9, which was passed by the 2016 Utah Legislature. It describes pornography as a public health crisis. In the first segment of the program today, we talked with Senator Todd Weiler, the resolution's sponsor, and with Vana Davis, Executive Director of the Utah Coalition Against Pornography. Just a listener advisory for the next conversation. Some listeners may find some terms in the following conversation objectionable. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. In this part of the program, we turn to Anna Bridges, Associate Professor of Psychology at University of Arkansas. And among her research areas is pornography's effects on sexual behavior and violence against women. Uh, Professor Bridges, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let me just uh, start with uh, Utah's Senate Current Resolution 9, which describes uh, pornography as a public health uh, crisis. Uh, What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that that is... um somewhat of a concern. Um, I think that I understand the ideas behind the declaring of it as a public health crisis, but I think that some of the rationale for this is um, unwarranted, and I think that the public health crisis aspect of it needs to be addressed in two ways. One is uh, acknowledging that much of what sells um, in pornography now is violent and aggressive and tells a unidimensional and pretty awful story about sex. But the other piece of it is that we are not telling stories about sex that provide an alternative narrative. And so I think in the absence of addressing this with comprehensive sex education, media, literacy, and some other alternatives, it's a problematic move on the part of the Utah legislation. And Utah does have um, does not have comprehensive sex education. It's uh, abstinence uh, only at this at this point. You see that as as a problem. It needs a counter narrative. Pornography does. Indeed, it does. I think that um, the problem is that, as I mentioned, pornography tells quite a distorted story about sexuality. Um, the people who get to have sex, what sex looks like, what's the emphasis of sex. Um, it's whether sex is safe, who has it, when, and 
that narrative is one that is generally outside of committed relationship, where the focus is on men, where women are often treated in degrading ways. And I think when you lack sex education that provides a counter-narrative, you create a real problem because people are interested in knowing about sex, especially young people. And if we don't give them information, they're going to seek it from the Internet. And the Internet's going to provide information that I think would run counter to what most people both experience in real life and maybe would want their children to learn about sex. So comprehensive sex education, what what are the... What are the elements of that that you would most like to see, especially if it's going to offer a counter-narrative to to pornography? Well, I think importantly is comprehensive sex education provides information that focuses on, you know, what are the functions of sex. For example, in pornography, the function is always on pleasure, typically on just male pleasure, um, typically with anonymous people. But I think that a real counter-narrative to that and the comprehensive sex education program will help young people know things like how do you have good relationships, starting with friendships, frankly. Um, how do you uh, express yourself sexually? How, does it, how do you negotiate consent? What does intimacy look like? How can sex be something that enhances a relationship rather than takes away from when would you do this? Um, how do you talk about it? If, if people aren't comfortable even talking about it, then it really doesn't make sense to be doing it. Um, and I think importantly, it should also emphasize what do healthy relationships look like? What are red flags in relationships? All these sorts of things I think are really important. I wonder, so public health crisis may be too strong? Would pornography public health problem or or not? Where, where would you well, I, put it? Yeah, I'm, I believe that it, it makes sense to frame the role of pornography in sexual behavior from a public health perspective, which, which means don't focus so much on maybe just the media part or just a um, free speech kind of rationale, but to think about the fact that pornography as a construction of sexuality does get disseminated, especially now very widely, and that dissemination does influence behavior. So I think it's important to approach it not from the perspective of an individual level, but from the perspective of, of a broad level, what's happening to, to a community or, or a, a population because of that. So I don't mind that perspective. I think calling it a problem or a crisis, some of the research that is cited in the in the um, the act was one that is, or some of it's pretty new. We just don't know very much about it yet. For example, brain effects, some of that research is just emerging. It's uh, there for every one study that shows a particular effect, you have another study that doesn't find it. So we really just don't know a lot about some of the new stuff. I would prefer to think about it as how can we think of this from a public perspective rather than public crisis. Um, what about the uh, the, the research? Um, are there? Well, I happen to know. I'm reading a, at least the opening of one of your papers, where you said you discovered a, sort of a hole in the research, um, and and you, you're focusing on pornography effects on sexual behavior, violence against women. Um, this particular paper, pornography's effects on interpersonal relationships. So, I guess in general, where where is the research? 
Sure. That that research um, was research I started in graduate school about 10 years ago. And at that point, there had really been no work done looking at pornography from the perspective of uh, a romantic relationship. So uh, most of the work had been done on what happens to an individual person who sees pornography. So my work, in part based on some clinical practice and, and experiences I'd had, was really looking at this from the perspective of what does this mean in a relationship, both for the the person who's viewing pornography and also for their partner, um, what what I found is that there's, for at least a pretty significant minority of people, maybe about 25% of the women I studied, found that pornography used by a partner, especially when it was frequent, was associated with a sense of betrayal. Um, the women really felt as though their partners were doing it because they weren't enough, they weren't good enough or pretty enough or or sexually expressive enough, and, and some women had even tried to reenact scenes from the pornography or, or incorporate it into their sex lives, thinking that that might help, but usually felt just used by their partner in that case. But for the, for a lot of people, that wasn't the pro- a problem, and, and some couples incorporate it successfully into their lives, and, and others just let it be an individual behavior that they don't feel really has anything to do with their relationship quite a variety of outcomes. Mm. And there's quite a variety of pornography, I, I would think, uh, right? So um, one of the things you, you're you looking into is uh, pornography's effects on violence against women. What, what have you found there? Sure. Well, I'll start by just uh, addressing your point about the variety of pornography. Um, yes, there is a variety of pornography, and the most popular and best-selling pornography is fairly homogenous. So about 10 years ago, and I'm updating that study now, we looked at the best-selling and best-renting pornography at the time, this would have been in 2005, and coded these videos for sexual behavior and and, uh, the uh, expression of pleasure and violence and degradation and, and all kinds of different things. And the story tends to be one that focuses on men perpetrating um, pretty mild but frequent aggression against women. That can include things like calling names, um, spanking, hitting, choking, spitting, and so forth. Um, we then, uh, although there are different kinds of pornography and then some that is uh, doesn't pair degradation and violence with sex, the best-selling stuff seems to be more of that flavor. Now, since then, the Internet has started... Um, using a lot more, or um, a lot more sites are now doing amateur pornography. I don't know how that looks. That's a, an interesting research question. So it may be that the variety has expanded significantly and maybe the violence has decreased because it's just more readily available. Anyone can make it and post it. With respect to how it affects violence against women or its associations, there have been actually a number of different meta-analyses, which these are studies of studies. They summarize statistically a number of studies that show links between pornography use and violence against women variables, like believing that women are um, maybe less res- or more responsible for their own rapes, or believing that violence against women is justified, or that sexual harassment is okay. But those studies oftentimes are show associations, but they can't tell us that pornography causes those things. Some studies show that it comes first, that the more pornography someone consumes later, you see a shift in attitudes. But it's really difficult to study this. It's it's unethical to make people watch a lot of pornography if they don't already do so. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you mean, in other words, a, a control Right. Group, uh, there's right. a really clever study that was done recently where they asked people who were using frequent pornography to stop using for a period of time. And that was a nice study because they control. They had a control group that was asked to stop eating a favorite food. And then the experimental group was asked to stop using pornography for about a month. And they found that the experimental group, when they stopped using pornography, were rated themselves as being more committed to their partners and some other really interesting findings around the relationship. But the people who were abstaining from a favorite food did not change in terms of their commitment to their partners. So we can do some of those sorts of clever things, but it's very hard to study this. So what, um, uh, yeah, very hard to study this. So then how do you study it? Well, you, you take a lot of different approaches. I think that the best thing you can do is triangulate on some themes by studying it many different ways. So, for example, um, I found some work that uh, anonymity makes a huge difference in people's willingness to disclose behaviors that might be seen as embarrassing or stigmatizing, like pornography use. Um, we studied, uh, asked people under conditions of anonymity and then under identifiable conditions to report on their pornography use, and we had about five or six times greater numbers of people saying they use pornography when they could be anonymous than when they were identified. So we do some of that because identifiability might lower people's willingness to report on their sexual behavior. But it's also important to do some of these lab-based studies, like the one I described where people abstain from pornography, because it's, it's, it's critical to showing cause effect. So my big concern, back to the Utah decision, is that they are inferring cause and effect from many studies that actually only show association. So we don't know if we ban pornography, for example, if some of these things would change or if pornography is a symptom of something else. What about uh, compulsion or, uh, I guess, related addiction? We, we're hearing, and, and that's one of the reasons uh, given for Senate current, current Resolution 9, uh, some individuals uh, become addicted to pornography. What, what, is the, what does research show? Sure. Well, again, this is a pretty novel area, and so there's not a lot of scientific consensus. Right now, there is no such thing as pornography addiction. There was a proposal to include a hypersexual behavior um, diagnosis in the most recent diagnostic and statistical manual from the American Psychiatric Association, but it did not have enough research to support its inclusion. I personally um, don't love the addiction model for pornography. I think it, it's more like a behavior that people do over and over again because it's pleasurable. I call that compulsion, um, not addiction. There are some people who are starting to look at brain processes and other things, and they're trying to make a link between addiction, like for substances and addiction to pornography. But I I am not convinced by that. I think the research at this point is way too new. What we do know is that people will tell us that they feel, sometimes, some people, that they feel their pornography use is out of control, they use longer than they intended, their material that they're using is more violent or extreme or more uh, fetish than what they, it originally had been, or that they're having trouble <clears throat> in their relationships because of it. So. People really are suffering. Some some people really are suffering because of their habits, but I don't know that I would call it an addiction. You call it a compulsion. What? What? How would you? What's the difference? 
Sure. An addiction for me is when you ingest a psychoactive substance and it has an effect on your brain. Clearly, you're not ingesting a psychoactive substance here. What I say a compulsion is a drive towards doing a behavior. So that could be eating or shopping or masturbating or looking at pornography. And the, the drive is usually initially begun because it's a pleasurable behavior. It's something that, that brings pleasure, and there is a neurochemical association with pleasure in our brains. But it, it also can turn into something where the, you're consistently seeking that pleasure. It's not as pleasurable the next time you do it, so you do it more hoping to get that same degree of pleasure. Um, some people think that because of that, that that makes it an addiction. I, I think you see that even with behaviors that aren't uh, addictive, but that people want to do repetitively. Um, and even sometimes against their better judgment. For example, people who might do this at work when there is a no pornography policy and might put them at risk of being fired. Uh, I was just going to ask you about, you mentioned this, uh, I'm using the word escalation, I don't know if that's the correct word. Uh, some people do report, apparently, that uh, start out at one point with pornography and go to more violent or, 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 or something else, more extreme perhaps? Right, and and that's actually um, based on a very common psychological phenomenon we call habituation. So, frankly, we just get used to things. Um, we we can get used to all kinds of emotions. We get bored very easily. When I teach this to my students, the concept of habituation, I think about the movie Pulp Fiction, which starts off with a very gruesome, violent scene, and and you can feel. I saw it in the theater. The audience just respond with a lot of emotion. It circles back near the end of that story, back to that scene. But by then, you've seen so much violence that when the scene happens again near the end of the movie, it doesn't feel very shocking. In fact, some people might even find it funny at that point. And I feel like pornography also does that. Um, you get used to seeing certain things, and then that's boring. I've seen it before. It's not interesting, and, and therefore it's not maybe as arousing. Whereas if I see something new, something that no one's ever done before... Maybe it means more people, maybe it means more penetrations with more orifices, any one of a number of things, including violence, then I can maybe have a, a jolt of arousal. So that's a very common phenomenon in psychology, habituation. And that's what leads people to seek more extreme or different and more degrading violent pornography. And then uh, I guess my, this might be a good jumping out point for, for this question. Uh, it gets back to public health part of this, you know, whether you call it a public health crisis like Resolution 9 did in Utah or, or whatever you call it. You, you, you know, a person might say, well, if I'm using pornography, um, perhaps it only affects me. But uh, the moment it affects the relationship or, or the public at large, then that's where you know, the, the the state might step in with, with something. Uh, so what, where do you think those, those touch points are? Um, you've taught, you've, you looked a little bit into in your research on effects on relationships, right? Um, right. how prevalent is that the damage to relationships? Through so pornography so use? It's actually, it's an interesting question because the truth is that, um, pornography use is very common, especially among men. Um, over 95% of men um, have seen pornography and over 80% use regularly, and increasingly common among women, where 40 to 50% are using it at least at some level. So 
so you have to imagine that more most people are doing it to at least some degree, and then you have a small, not a, not unimportant, not insignificant, but a small number of people for whom this becomes really a problem, a detriment. It, I also liken it to alcohol. I think most people have uh, some degree of involvement with alcohol and drink on occasion and don't develop a problem, and there is a small group of people for whom this becomes a real problem. So I, I don't mind at all the idea of looking at this from this, uh, that it's not just an individual person, that it does have tendrils and how it may impact families and, and, and so forth. But I think that it's especially problematic when you don't provide counter narratives. And I don't think the answer is, so just don't talk about sex at all and ban pornography. I think that the, the recognition that most people are doing this and for a small number of people it becomes a problem is really important to keep in mind. That's a that's a big number. Ninety percent have viewed it at least once, and eighty percent using pornography regularly. That's I guess that would be what across across the U.S. Yeah. So so there have been both national studies and then also um, smaller samples, more convenient samples in local areas. But yes, anywhere in adults, of course, um, that's about the prevalence rate. Um. Now, what about children? Uh, one of the there was a bill passed this past Utah legislative uh, session had to do with you know increased rules on uh, being vigilant about c- computers and removing pornography. Uh, it's so and and I think statistics show that uh, children uh, I don't know pretty young children are 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 uh, being exposed to pornography. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think the average age now is somewhere between 11 and 12, um, and I know for certain, you know, children are, will Google something like a butt joke or something, and then within three clicks, we'll see um, anal sex scenes, graphic anal sex scenes on their computer. So, I, you know, I think that parents are much less informed about what's out there, maybe, than they ought to be, and I, this is, again, a conversation where I feel like sex education in the home, in the school, becomes so important because to say that they're not going to find this is not accurate. They will. Um, even if you try to block it, kids are savvier with computers than we are. And, and even if you are doing a good job in your home, they go to a friend's house, or, or especially now with mobile technology, you just can't, I think, get around the issue that it's pervasive and, and, and people will find it. So it becomes especially important to provide information and accurate information about what they're seeing, that it's not real, that it's a representation, why maybe you find it objectionable or or what about it you might find objectionable, so that when they see that, they have some way of understanding it. We can't protect our kids from being offered drugs and from being offered cigarettes either. Um, even when we banned drugs, they were still offered these. So we have to provide them with the tools for how to make sense of what is happening. Finally, I want to ask you about uh, therapy. A person mm-hmm. or, uh, I guess, a couple troubled by, you know, uh, pornography use by, by one or, I guess, both partners. What, what, what are you finding? Their effective strategies. Okay. Well, again, this is pretty new, and, and there have been very very few studies done that look at therapeutic approaches for managing uh, compulsive or problematic pornography use. There are, there's maybe one or two randomized control trials, um, and these are very small numbers, but that's the gold standard way of studying therapy. 
Um, and a number of people have written about it, but in terms of the research to show effectiveness, there's very little. Um, in my laboratory, we did do one of those small randomized control trials um, looking at an individual therapy for a person, both men and women, who presented with a desire to cut down or, or eliminate their pornography use. And we are finding some really positive effects using techniques like um, enhancing their relationship, um, focusing uh, energies on managing their environment to reduce triggers for use or cues to use. We provide a lot of psychoeducation about pornography, and we try to disentangle pornography use from masturbation. For many people, those two things are the one and the same. So we encourage masturbation, but we try to discourage masturbation with pornography as the aid. So we want to enhance fantasizing and, and self-generated um, ideas about sexuality. Um, when we do focus on these sorts of things, we find really positive effects, at least during the duration of treatment. People are able to meet their goals of either abstaining or significantly cutting back on their use, and they think that part of what really helps is um, changing their behavior and their environment and then accountability, having somebody to talk to who's going to hold them accountable for their behavior. What is, uh, I should say, post finally here, um, uh, what do you think is the biggest hole in, in the research? What do you think is the biggest need to be studied in this general topic? Well, I, I would say there are two things. Um, the first one is we know almost nothing about the content of Internet pornography, even though that is by far and away the most common way pornography is accessed now. And so un until we understand what is being seen by whom, I think it's very hard to talk about what are the, the effects um, on, a, on the population or anyone else. So I think we really need to know more about that. The second thing is that I think that this topic is a topic that is pretty taboo. It's not seen as something that is worth funding. It's um, not always viewed as real science, and that's a huge problem. I think changing perspective about the legitimacy of this scientific area of study is going to be really important for getting a whole bunch of new scientists involved in really studying and understanding and, and um, exploring this problem. We've been talking with Anna Bridges, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arkansas. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we thank you for listening to Access Utah today. We thank uh, Senator Todd Weiler, uh, who is the sponsor of Senate Concurrent Resolution 9, which is what we're talking about, and Vanna Davis, Executive Director, Utah Coalition Against Pornography. We had this uh, comment come in by email uh, just in the middle of the program, just uh, as we concluded the first segment of the program. This is from Glenn. Uh, he says, I think part of the problem with porn and adolescence could stem here in Utah from a much stymied and stigmatized sex education process. Couple that with an across-the-board underfunding of the education system. If I was to define anything as a crisis, I would start there. It's almost as though today's guests, I think he's talking about the guests in the first half of the program, are punishing the chickens because the fox got into the hen house. There are powerful forces that compel humans to find out about sex, sexual processes, nudity, and etc. If kids are taught about sex gradually and with proper quality about respect, the proper time, and the effects of, they will be less likely to venture into the porn world for information. Standing around saying it's wrong and don't do it only raises questions that lead to avenues toward porn. 
This is not just a lazy argument. That's Glenn. Thank you for that. We appreciate that. And uh, we hope that uh, you will join us tomorrow for the program. By the way, keep the comments coming on this subject. We'd be interested to know what you uh, think. Uh, you can keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, uh, or you can go to our website, upr.org, where you can hear this program again. You can comment there. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we'll be talking with Charles Bach. Uh, his daughter was five months old when his wife was diagnosed with leukemia. His wife died two and a half years later, just before their daughter's third birthday. And uh, Charles Bach has written a new novel based on that experience. It's titled Alice and Oliver. We'll talk about that, as well as Charles Bach's hometown, which is Las Vegas. A very interesting place, of course. And that's where his first novel, Beautiful Children, was set. It was a New York Times bestseller. Charles Bach is my guest uh, tomorrow. Hope you join me then. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.